Welcome to the HCI Family of Podcasts, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We share our own original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. Join us for practitioner-oriented content around all things leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with the HCI family of podcasts. Welcome to the podcast. In this podcast episode, I talk with Christopher Van Bergen about corporate social responsibility and responsible sourcing. Chris Van Bergen, welcome to the conversation today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thanks, John. It is a pleasure to be with you. Where are you joining me from? I live in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, used to live in New York. And uh, like with COVID, everybody else, we went remote. We had our office in uh, in downtown New York and went remote. And we stayed remote. So we were able to move closer to families. So my wife's family is here in St. Louis. So that's where we are. Wonderful. I'm from the other side, the Kansas City side, um, oh, okay. north, northwest Missouri. So I'm out here in Salt Lake City area now, um, but I love Missouri, love the Midwest. So welcome to the conversation. Pleasure to have you. Um, today, we're going to be talking about corporate social responsibility and responsible sourcing. But before we jump in, I wanted to share Christopher's bio with everybody. Chris Van Bergen is the CFO and COO of Nest, a nonprofit working in the hand worker economy to generate global workforce inclusivity, improve worker well-being beyond factories, and preserve cultural traditions using radical transparency, data-driven development, and fair market access to connect craftspeople, brands, and consumers in a circular and human-centric value chain. I love everything about that description, by the way. I just wanted to say uh, that's really great. Um, Chris, anything you would like to specifically highlight by way of your own personal or professional background or the nonprofit before we dive on in? Um, sure. Just essentially that um, I think a lot of people don't realize how much work happens in the handcraft space and mm. thinking that this sector is kind of small or niche and it's just like, oh, isn't that cute? It's like, some old ladies weaving something, right? But the reality is it's a huge sector. Um, you know, it's going to approach probably a trillion dollars in valuation by in the next few years. Mm. And that there are a ton of brands, big and small, that are leveraging this work. It's not artisan artisanship and that kind of really nice, very unique stuff is certainly a big part of the sector, but it's not all of it. So yeah. think about like every basket that's on every shelf of every big box retailer that's also handcrafted, which is super cool and why I love, frankly, love what we do at Nest, both here in the U.S. and globally. But but yeah, that's, uh, that's well, very cool. And and, I, and part of this conversation today is informed by your recent book. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and how yeah. your work at Nest has helped to inform it. Sure, absolutely. So the, the book is called Certifiable. Um, subtitle is How Businesses Operationalize Responsible Sourcing, which is why we're having this conversation today. Um, and that's a big piece of actually what Nest does. Uh, the supply chain that we work in um, is really complex, really complicated. Yeah. It goes way beyond kind of the traditional factory production model. So we have a ton of, ton of most of the work actually happens in homes and very small workshops. 
And a number of years ago, uh, something that Nest did is we launched a standard and an assessment and training protocol um, for a compliance program for this type of supply chain. Traditional compliance that brands were using really only addressed factory models because that's mm-hmm. the traditional sort of tier one finishing factory model. And we had brands that really wanted to source products with, or with, with artisans and handcraft producers, but they said, you know what, we can't. And we're like, well, part of our mission is getting market access for all of these amazing businesses around the world, right? We work yeah. across 120 countries, but if they can't get their product out there, what are we doing? So we started asking those brands, why? Like, why is that? You, you know the quality of the product, you know the businesses. They said simply because there was too much risk. They didn't know who was oh. making it. They didn't know if they were uh-huh. getting paid. My gosh, are there children involved, right? I mean, all mm-hmm. of these very, very important questions if you're a responsible brand. And, and so at Nest, I, I had the pleasure of, of helping lead the team that developed that standard and, and then started working with all these brands um, to get those products on shelves. And so I was able to really see the hard work that goes on the brand side and frankly, the producer side and the nonprofit side, all the hard work that goes into actually responsibly sourcing the product. What does that actually mean? How do you get transparency there? Um, so that, that was a big piece of what informed this book. The other side is the, the fact that in addition to my work at NEST, I, I'm an adjunct professor at NYU Stern School of Business. And so I've been interfacing with business executives and their MBA, uh, executive MBA program and business students and had lots of people taking my course and lots of people approaching me saying, you know what, like we're making these declarative statements around how we're going to be responsible. But we don't know how to actually do that. Like, what's the action mm-hmm. plan? And so I was like, okay, well, maybe this is a place where I can help. And frankly, I looked around, you know, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. There was no primer on this idea. How did we get to where we are in terms of concepts of social responsibility or corporate responsibility? What does it mean? Who's doing it? What do those certifications mean? All that sort of good stuff. And so that was really the driving force behind, behind the book, uh, both, both my work and world at Nest, which I, I absolutely adore, and this, this other world working and interfacing directly with the business sector. Yeah, super interesting. So like you said, uh, the world of supply chain and sourcing is super complicated. I, I think yeah. we recognize that perhaps the, the lay person recognized that more than ever during the pandemic <laughs> when sure. all of a sudden it like started to impact everyday people in very real ways. Um, yep. So 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 supply chains are complicated when you're now trying to think in terms of ethical and, and responsible sourcing. That makes it even more challenging to your sure. point. Um, and all of this is happening within a context of, you know, corporate social responsibility, triple bottom line, ESGs, stakeholder capitalism, you know, all the different frameworks and, and terms it. that people are using. Um, and in companies, I, I think most companies want to do right. They, they, they you know, they, they don't want to have child sweatshops, you know, they, sure. they, they, they sure. want to do right by people and they want to do right by the communities in which they function. Um, but it, it is complicated. And to your point with your students at uh, uh, at NYU, I think you said um, yes, that's right. that they don't know what to do and, and, mm-hmm. and people don't want to just do performative stuff. They don't want to just like make a, a, a statement and then yeah. go back on it, but they don't really know how to actually, uh, you know, create the systems and the processes to help them accomplish what they say they're doing, or at least what they want to do, their aspirational goals in this arena. Um, so anyways, I just wanted to reiterate, super complicated space, a really yes. challenging space, but just because it's complicated and challenging and messy doesn't mean we shouldn't try to tackle it. So thank you for entering the space and trying to to help um, clarify and, and, and shed a light on some of these sorts of things. Um, now, if we start to zoom in on responsible sourcing, mm-hmm. what 
are you seeing as some of the the current trends? You know, what where have things come in the last few years, and what do you see some of the current trends, and where do you see ourselves going uh, sure. in the next few years? Yeah, sure. It's um, I mean, it, thank you for that context because you're absolutely right. It's so complicated, and it is a what's interesting about this work um, is that it is a dramatically changing landscape all the time. I'll give you a couple examples, right? I mean, you mentioned triple bottom line and investing and the conversation around ESG right now is just, it's yeah. completely blown up, right? Everyone's saying, yeah. well, what are we reporting on? And then there's regulation in terms of what you can say and what you can't say. And, and so I think investor interest and kind of social impact investing has certainly been a driving factor here for, for, for quite some time. And now it's finally, I think in a good way, actually consolidating in terms of like, what are the expectations? How can you tell me what you're actually doing, right? And the consumers are feeling the same way. So much consumer confusion around labeling and everything else. And how do we actually say, yes, this label means this thing. Um, so it's, a, it's an amazing, uh, amazingly rapidly changing uh, landscape. In terms of trends, I would say that technology is playing a huge role right now in a really interesting way. And maybe that's funny coming from a guy who, who, whose like life is spent in handcraft, right? But, but technology is, is opening up a whole world of opportunity in some really, really cool ways. One is actually in supply chain transparency and traceability of products across, including across really complicated supply chains. So I'll give you one example of a company. I really, really think they're doing some really interesting stuff and it's called uh, BankQ, which is spelled B-A-N-Q-U, BankQ. Um, they use a blockchain um, technology actually, which you can say what you want about blockchain. I think it's kind of the wild west and lots of promises and stuff. And so I'm, I'm, I will, I'm kind of a skeptic when it comes to blockchain, but what they're doing I think is incredibly cool. Um, in terms of the fact that they're able to actually trace all of the financial transactions in a, say, a commodity product, like let's use coffee, right? Mm. At some point, it gets really tricky all the way down to the smallholder farmer person who's actually grown the coffee because it just gets bought by somebody and bought by somebody, gets aggregated, it gets you know roasted, and then it's like in Starbucks or wherever. So it's really tricky to know, well, how much did the coffee farmer actually make here, right? And so thank you. And they don't just do coffee, they do a lot of different supply chains, but they're able through their platform to, to find out exactly what that farmer made. What's equally as cool is that the farmer knows what the market rate is of that commodity the moment they're about to sell it. So they just go through like very simple SMS messaging, right? Something they can utilize if they have a smartphone, if they don't, it doesn't really matter. But they'll know, okay, the coffee's gonna be this price today. I know I'm not yeah. getting screwed because they're, you know, very right. interesting. And it finally puts the like, puts the power in the hands of the smallholder farmer to accept or not accept that payment. And and the way that they built it is that those very large coffee companies, if they're on this platform, can actually see the flow of the product all the way up the supply chain, including quality and everything else. Really, really cool. So and and they're not the only solution out there, but tech is definitely playing a big piece of this. Um, and if you look so at just that mm -hmm. that trackability the transparency yeah. piece is yes. is really key here right super key and i mean at, for nest with the you know part of our compliance program we go into these um these amazing handcraft producers and it's it's a lot of informal economy stuff just as as it is in 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 agriculture where maybe there's records probably not it's sort of a trust-based system of of equal exchange, how do we know what to set the pricing? So like our, what our program does is essentially establish what those procedures should look like. How do you do a time and motion study to make sure that those workers are getting paid fairly, those kinds of things. So establishing more structure without destroying the beautiful nature of this sort of inf informal exchange. Do you need to work full-time? No, you don't need to work full-time. You can, you know, it's secondary income if you want it to be. 
Um, but establishing more frameworks and structures. So with that transparency, so that the, the worker at the end of the day knows that they're being treated fairly, really, really important. So that's one, I think tech in a different way in terms of the, the ability to produce products, the ability to establish a more circular way of thinking when it comes to products. I'll give you another example of a, of a company that's called Evernew, which is spelled E-V-R-N-U. Um, they are tackling an issue in, in kind of the garment and apparel industry in terms of like when you upcycle a, a, a garment, you can kind of only do that so many times and do so many things. Eventually, it's going to still end up in the landfill, right? You're just kind of delaying that issue. Whatever new is, is, is figuring out and has figured out at a certain level is how to actually break down garments to a molecular level so that it can be mm. respun, which is super cool, right? Because then it's like yeah. conceivably, this shirt could just be like remade a million times, right? Um, still kind of early days. They, I mean, they're doing great stuff and they've had a lot of pilot projects and things, um, including with some fast fashion brands, which I think is genius. Um, but things like that, just new ways of thinking, I think is great. Another trend that I'm seeing a lot is increased collaboration, including with uh, folks that you would think would be direct competitors in the market. Um, you know, I mean, from again, from the Nest perspective, we have a coalition of brands, some of whom are direct competitors. They're all sitting around the same table to try and address systemic challenges within the sector. You can look at the uh, Sustainable Apparel Coalition in terms of big apparel companies kind of doing similar ideas at a, you know, at a, on the factory level, for example, or looking at ocean-bound plastics and businesses either who are competitive with each other or um, just across a, a whole wide array of sectors just saying, you know what, this is an issue. So let's work on it together. Okay, Trek Bicycles, okay, Dell Computers, okay, Fashion Brand. Let's all come together and let's figure this out. And so seeing a lot more of that. Uh, those collaborative collaborative projects, I think is really, really interesting. I think one we're also seeing it in market in a kind of a cool way. This is a little more unusual, but I just love seeing it. And that is uh, the, the mashup of Adidas with Allbirds. So Adidas, obviously mm. huge, longstanding sneaker and footwear company, Allbirds, more of a startup um, known for um, like sustainable production and stuff. They actually joined forces and shared IP so they could create a co-branded shoe that to have zero carbon footprint in production. Mm. And so, I mean, it's cool that they were sharing ideas, but then to co-brand the actual product, is it's kind of amazing. They have at least one that's been released. I think they have a few. Um, and then of course they can take the lessons they learned from each company and then go off and do their own thing too. But to kind of, so what, like, what kind of market signal does that send to the consumer? It's like, hey, look, we're, we're actually collaborating in this because we want to make better opportunities for everybody else. So um, that's certainly another trend I see. And then I think finally, uh, maybe it's obvious, but increased brand ownership over brands roles in kind of per perpetuating some systemic challenges within the supply chain. Meaning things like brands no longer really being willing to bounce from one vendor to another based on lowest costs, right? We learned a lot of these lessons and things like Rana Plaza and other places, but brands are, are much more willing and interested in having longer term sourcing relationships, which leads to a lot more trust, right? If the, mm -hmm. if the vendor is like, we're having problems, but we don't wanna say anything because we're afraid you're gonna leave. Then, then those problems never get bubbled up, right? But if there's a more of a trust-based relationship, then the vendor can say, you know what? Yes, we have we have like excessive overtime in our production. And can I tell you why? It's kind of because we have these follow-on orders from you that we love, but you don't give us enough time to produce. So what else are we supposed to do other than make people work more than they really should? They might want the money, but they really shouldn't be working those hours or it's going to have to be unauthorized subcontracting to maintain the contract with you. Is there any way we can? So in that dialogue is something that actually we see all the time uh, in our work at Nest. And it's amazing to watch that interplay and watch that trust being built. Um, so those are kind of the, the big trends that I see. Obviously there are more, 
Um, yeah, yeah. But that's, you know. that's super helpful. Thank you. And I, I'm wondering, I mean, hopefully it's obvious why we should be paying attention to this, um, why it's important. Um, but, you know, and, and I do think that most people, you know, wake up in the morning wanting to do right by others and we don't want yeah. to exploit workers. We don't want to exploit consumers or the environment, generally speaking. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of companies or and or senior leaders, they don't really know what to do. And so a lot of what is happening in this space is like for let's take ESGs, for example. Um, sure. Big, complicated thing. Right. And and, um, you know, a recent I'm trying to remember what it was exactly, but I think it was over the summer. A recent report came out and basically put pressure to change the way we were um, acknowledging ESGs, which changed how investors were looking at ESG reports, which has changed yeah. the way companies are now focusing on ESG outcomes. Um, yeah. Right. And so what, yeah. what it highlighted was, yeah, a, a big motive here is simply if you want to get investors, you need to have high ESG scores. Um, and even that is a little bit in flux right now. It's complicated, but you know, so that, so there's a profit motive and, and there's simply like, I need access to, to um, capital and investors right. and, and such. So that's important. There's the PR piece. Like you, nobody wants to have the big headline saying, you know, this company has sweatshops and wherever and exploited child labor and et cetera. Nobody wants that. Um, so there's the PR piece. Uh, there, there's all these different things that can go into, I guess, why it's important to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, any anything you would add to that, and perhaps from a less cyn cynical view. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll try and be less cynical. Um, <laughs> I, I will say, um, I don't want it to be misconstrued that just because I work for a nonprofit and am a bleeding heart liberal, I don't think that these do need to be kind of profit driven exercises, right? Like this. Yeah business and for the for-profit sector is critical and like don't yeah. become a nonprofit. you know it's like don't do that if yeah. you want to be a business and you want to exist you by the way you have to make money at some point yeah. right like that's yep. the way it works i think what is interesting is that you know historically speaking you, you know the milton friedman and the whole deal it's like well no businesses their sole purpose is to provide returns for the shareholder right that's like and you can you can spin that quote however you want um i do think in many ways Friedman actually was right. I think he was right. As a business, you need if you're if you have investors, you need to provide a return for those investors. Because if you don't, guess what? You were kind of a nonprofit, right? Yep. What I think that the the pivot there is, and why why we should be paying attention is that what's being increasingly proven out is that you can provide returns through sustainable means, and that's you know because of consumer interest on the one side. I will also say it's because of, and we're seeing it because of COVID, right? It increases your resiliency in your mm. supply chain, both from a human capital perspective and social impact perspective, but obviously from a from environmental sustainability perspective, you need to actually have that resiliency planning baked in so that you can actually, you know, you can't really call COVID a black swan event because people were predicting stuff like that happening, right? But, yeah. or global warming is not really a black swan event either, but um, if you believe in global warming, which I do, I am a bleeding heart liberal after all, um, but, business does need to kind of lay the groundwork and be able to react to those issues. And if you do it right, you will bring your consumers along for the ride. You will still exist as a business and you'll be able to, you know, weather these storms. And frankly, you can probably steal market share. So you can try yeah. and do all of those things, right? So it, it, it to me, it really is, again, it's, am, am I in this, this line of work because of the impact? I absolutely am. But at the end of the day, it also drives business and it drives change and it drives increased impact. And that's, I think, 
whether you're a consumer, whether you're an investor, whether you're working inside a firm, all of those things are kind of working together right now. And it's finally coalescing into one conversation as opposed to just like some consumers over here, I just buy Patagonia. It's yeah. like not just that anymore, right? It's like everyone's asking these questions and you're asking them because um, maybe it's because like I couldn't find toilet paper during COVID. It's like, mm -hmm. what is that about? Like, oh, there's a supply chain. Oh, people actually make this stuff. Oh, that's weird. I just thought it was like some robot like magically appeared on my shelf, right? <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. Like hands are involved in pretty much everything we touch as, as human beings, right? Sometimes more hands than others. Like if it's that basket, for example. But um, I think we are, we are, are kind of getting back to that idea that there is a human on the other side, other side of that supply chain. And that's as a, again, as a consumer, as an employee or as an investor. So all of that is driving this conversation forward from yeah. a business perspective, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't have to be a bleeding heart liberal to believe in climate change. You don't have to be a bleeding heart liberal to think ESGs are important or, you know, right. corporate social responsibility is important. You don't have to be a yeah. bleeding heart liberal to think we don't want to exploit workers, right? I think these are they have become politicized kinds of notions, unfortunately, but they don't need to be. And sure. uh, these are the types of conversations. I think a lot of people share these values um, across the, the political uh, spectrum and from a variety of backgrounds and, and worldviews. And ultimately, yeah, it makes sense from a business perspective. Absolutely. Um, but it also, it makes sense for just the world we're in, uh, <laughs> uh, taking care of, of people, the environment, and, and so, yeah, I think we absolutely all should be paying attention to it. And I, I pose those cynical questions up front, but yeah, I, I suppose I'm a bleeding heart liberal too. Um, but I, I think regardless of the, the motive, we, we want people to behave in sustainable ways and we want, um, you know, people to do right by others and by the planet. And, and I think that's what most people want. So anyways, I thank you for that explanation. Um, how how can we get involved in this? Because, you know, in the world of impact investing, you know, you have sure. people living in this space and, and you have people in your space. And but the like the common day to day person isn't necessarily sure. thinking about all this. Um, how can consumers, in addition to investors, get engaged with responsible yeah. sourcing? Great. It's a great question. And um, I think the answer is that consumers need to be doing their homework more. Um, unfortunately, I will say, because there is, there's still, you know, like I think I said it before, but there are all these labels on packages and we don't really know what they mean. We think mm. we understand what the impact of our purchase is, but um, the good news with the internet and everything else is that there is a lot more access to information now than there ever really was before. And that that's just, that's not going away. That's actually increasing in terms of the speed of access. And so I would say that consumers, if you're interested in getting more involved, look at the brands that you support look at the impact reports that they put out. Most brands are putting them out now. That's almost becoming table stakes, whether they're publicly traded or not. Um, see what they say that they're doing. How are they tracking those metrics, right? Is it, and again, you know, I hate it, but it's like we've been, there's been so much greenwashing over the years. So it's like, well, yeah. the proof really does need to be in the pudding now. You really do need yeah. to say, okay, you're doing this thing. Whatever that commitment is, is it um, you know, around water scarcity? Is it around something else? It could be anything, but like, okay, that's great. Are you managing what you measure, right? Are you actually getting down to the data points and how are you doing that? Obviously, if you're a fashion brand, you're not gonna be an expert in water usage. So who's your partner, right? I mean, you, and it's okay to partner with people. You don't need to do everything, right? Design the clothes and figure out the circularity of the production process, but like, who are you bringing in? Um, so really taking a, a look under the hood in terms of the brands beyond the, you know, the glossy advertising and look on their websites, 
the brands that are really doing it will tell you because they're they are mm -hmm. putting a ton of work and a ton of resources yep. behind these efforts right and they're you know there are brands out there that are doing a ton of work that you might not even know are doing it because they don't advertise it I, like yeah. an example i will tell you target is an incredible company and they're doing a ton of work you go into a target store and it's like well i'm going to buy my groceries or my clothes whatever and it's great i feel good about it they're very subtle i don't know if it's like the minnesota nice thing since they're headquartered in minneapolis but Go look at their their sustainability reporting. Look at their goals and objectives and how they're tracking it. They're really, you know, they do what they're saying. And there's so many companies out there that are like that. So some of them obviously are using it as a differentiator in the business. And I mean, in the Patagonia space, there are a lot of those companies are doing kind of the same thing now. But at the time when they were founded, it was like Patagonia was like leading with sustainability, leading with impact, doing it yeah. all, right? And now everyone's caught up because like, wow, that really works here. And so everybody's doing it, you know, upcycling, clothing, everything, and which is awesome. And they've kind of changed the nature of the industry in that way. But in other sectors and industries, they're not leading with it. They're not using it as that differentiator. So if it's a, a place where you're passionate about or a place where you're like, man, I'm spending a lot of money in the store. I wonder what they're like, what are their stances? What stances are they taking? And so you do need to do that research and kind of figure it out. Do the research on the labels too, right? So mm -hmm. Nest's program, we have a, we do have a consumer facing seal. Like if you go to you know, big brand partners of ours, but we target as a partner of ours. So is William Sonoma. We, you know, go to any like home, big home goods store. You might see our ethical handcrafted label on there. We have our website on there. Look at what that organization is doing. So look at all those different seals because they can be confusing. And is it mm -hmm. like a membership seal? Is it just saying, hey, I'm a member of this organization? Well, that doesn't really say a lot. Or is it actually like really a valid verification and a third party's coming in and doing the auditing and all that sort of stuff? So like, what, is it, what does it mean? So that you actually know. And look, at the end of the day, you, you can, you make your decisions. You know, it's a, you go to a grocery store, there's a reason why they're organic apples and conventional apples. It's like you can't always buy the organic apple, even if you want to, right? You have to make your choices and just be okay with that. And yeah. And, and so that's, that's my answer is really just really do your research. Same, frankly, for the investors, um, get the corporate reporting, but see if you can look under the hood a little bit more than that. Um, if it's a privately held company that you're investing in, like, drill down and say, well, okay, you say you're doing this. What does that mean? What are your KPIs? How are you doing it? Do you have somebody on staff who's an expert? Like those kind of things, right? So asking mm -hmm. the questions and moving beyond those declarative statements, I think is is uh, is really important. Wonderful. Chris, this has just been a really fun, fascinating conversation. I know the time I need to let you go here in just a minute, but before we wrap things up for today, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience how they can connect with you, find out more about sure. your work, where they can find your book, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Great. Um, connect with Nest through our website. The website is buildanest.org. Uh, you can find us. We, um, you know, obviously we have blogs, we have everything else. You can find out what's happening in our space. Uh, connect with me personally on LinkedIn. Look up Chris Van Bergen on LinkedIn. I, I love continuing these conversations. It's frankly the publishing of the book, The Biggest Joy, has been people reaching out and having more conversations and learning more and getting connected. Um, so please do that. Uh, happy to connect with anybody who's interested. Happy to talk, obviously, happy to talk about this conversation all day long. Um, <laughs> you, you can find my book where you can find books, right? You can find it on Amazon. You can find it in Barnes & Noble, everywhere else. Look up Certifiable. Um, uh, subtitle is How Businesses Operationalize Responsible Sourcing, or just search my my name as the author. Uh, buy it, read it, connect with me. I would love to, love to do that. Um, and in terms of the topic, I would say don't give up it sometimes can feel overwhelming. Like you're always going to make the wrong choice. It's like, oh, I thought that chocolate bar was ethical. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You can, <laughs> we can only do what we can do, right? We can just, every step in the right direction is a step in the right direction. And we talk to brands about this all the time at Nest, right? It's like, you can't 
you actually can't eat the whole elephant all at once. You just have to like figure out what are those, you know, those smart goals, those, those actionable goals, the small ones that you can actually make those easy wins and get to where you want to want to be and want to go. And just know that your intentions are to be as good as you can be when it comes to being a consumer or investor or running a business. There are trade-offs with everything and you just have to, you have to do what you can, you can do and feel good about it. You have to be able to sleep at night. Um, and just don't like, don't get too frustrated when you feel like all the decisions, there's some wrong in all of them. Sometimes it's just, what's the least bad. Sometimes it's like, oh, this is great. We're going to do this. That's obvious. Sometimes you just, you just have to go where you can go, um, and figure out, okay, this didn't feel great. What can we do next time? How do we actually get there? So that's, don't give up. I think is the, is the moral of that story. Wonderful. Chris, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Chris and his team can do for you. Check out the book. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe. You can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We hope you stay healthy and safe, and please join us again soon.